Our favourite, Toby Vec, had trotted his way up the steps to the top of the bell tower to consult with the chimes these bells had been calling to him. Ding dong, Toby Vec. Ding dong, come to us. <laughs> Ding dong. Toby Vec, come here. I'm entirely trustworthy. <laughs> Come over here, I have some moral lessons for you which will in no way turn you into an awful ironic punchline to your own lack of moral fiber. <laughs> I mean, come, bong, bong, bong. Hello to one and all, and Merry Christmas! It's Shark Liver Oil, it's the Christmas special, I'm excited to be here. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello! Yes! It's really, it's Christmas. It's the most <laughs> wonderful time of the year. I mean... It is. It, there's, there's just no, there's no, no time of year like it is. Like, come on, let's be honest. It's the absolutely None. level best, greatest time of the year. I won't hear any other conversation about it. You can take your Easter, you can take your, <laughs> with respect, Valentine's Day. <laughs> you can take your hot summer evenings. Forget about it all. It's Christmas, number one. And we're back with the second part of our Christmas special. This is The Chimes by Charles Dickens, or, to give it its full title, The Chimes, a goblin story of some bells that rang the old year out and the new year in. I, I don't think that as a subtitle really adds a great deal to the to the experience of the title. The, the chimes. Mm. Ooh, what chimes? How interesting, how intriguing. Oh, it's about goblins and somehow it's also about bells. Yeah. Do you think that yeah. was on the on the sort of request of his publisher? I'm going to call it, oh, get ready, The Chimes. Mm. Right. What's, what, what's, what's, what's it about? What did the word mess sound like in the early Victorian era, do you think? What's it about? What's it about these, like, goblins and stuff? Oh, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute. It's about what? Goblins? And Can we get that in the title? Put that well, on. Well, I've, I've already thought of it. Well, let's, let's get that in the title. He's, he's gone away and thought, right, well, okay, I'll get it in the title. Well, here's your title then. It's going to be practically the first paragraph of the book. The Chimes, a Goblin Story of Some Bells That Rang the Old Year Out and the New Year In. How'd you like that, publisher? And he's gone, well, we've got to publish it now. This is all in my head, by the way, Dave. <laughs> the, the publisher, no, this is canon now, Matt. We are rewriting history with our imaginations because that's what you can do. I just thought I'd clarify, yeah, this didn't necessarily happen this way. In case we get sued for libel by the flipping publisher. Yeah, exactly. In case Jacob Marley rises out of his grave to come and tell us a lesson. (laughs) Okay, so um, even though we're quite cheerful today, uh, I'll tell you someone who isn't, and that's that's good old Toby, who uh, (sighs) our our, our favourite trotting porter, Toby Vec, who when we last left him, had trotted his way up the steps um, in the middle of the night to the top of the uh, bell tower in this in this church to, to to sort of consult with the chimes. The chimes, these bells, have been calling to him in the middle of the night. Ooh. And, and well, and everybody, presumably, no. I mean, they are bells. Ah, but it's not spe- like- specifically to him, because as you remember, they were going ding dong. I'll be back. I'm very uncomfortable with introducing that voice as the canonical voice of the apparently angelic bells. Like it just that sounds more like just sort of kind of withered fallen angel trying to tempt you into a trap, isn't it? You know, it's like 
Toby Vec, come here. I'm entirely <laughs> trustworthy. Come over here. I have some moral lessons for you, which will in no way turn you into an awful, ironic punchline to your own lack of moral fiber. <laughs> I mean, come, bong, bong, bong. That's what you're doing there. That's I just want to draw the subtext out of your... Drawing <laughs> subtext all over the place here, aren't we? Rewriting history, coming up with new literary theories. That's shark liver oil, ladies and gentlemen. If it was today, the, the the chimes would put it in an email which began, Toby Vec, I'm an upstanding and legitimate <laughs> bell ringer. <laughs> Honestly, Matt, there's mileage in that. Writing a story about moral rebirth that comes from a 402 scam or whatever it is you <laughs> So So we're up in the bell tower. And um, as the as the bells ring, Toby sees this. Uh, I'm ba- I basically get what I want here. As the bells ring, <laughs> supernatural stuff begins. So these dwarf phantoms start floating around. All these spirits spinning and dancing. Uh, these elfin sort of creatures all like knocking about as well. <laughs> And it, loads of them everywhere, just sort of completely filling the air, filling the atmosphere. He sees them. Um, he sort of, he almost pulls out of the um, of the top of the bell tower, and he sees these spirits everywhere across the town city as well. Um, and then when the chimes stop, the spirits die and sort of just sort of disappear and evaporate. But it, it feels like they don't just sort of just disappear. They actually, you get the impression that they are going through the experience of dying as well. They sort of, uh, almost some of them are fighting against it and they just all sort of wisp off into nothingness. I love this, I, I don't know if you could tell, but I love this part of it. I was like, oh yeah, this is great. Because Dickens writes it so well and you can you can really sort yeah. of picture yourself in the middle of it. It's a bit bleak though, isn't it? Because he's been enjoying these bells the whole time. Hmm. And it turns out that now, every time the bells stop ringing, there's the sort of there's a sort of diorama of mankind's hopeless struggle against its own mortality played out at the end of every single bong you yeah. know spirits grasping at the air trying to stay alive as long as the bells resound that is dark is what that is <laughs> yeah. and if that's your idea of a good a good time then you know I'm not judging there's no judgment <laughs> here but but you're wrong basically <laughs> so he's left with them um, like when when the chimes stop he looks up at the the sort of great bell with all the others around it and hears the voice of the bell, which is basically... I mean, it's not really... It's kind of written almost ambiguously, this. You can either read it as the bell itself speaking to him in this goblin voice or there's literally a sort of a a goblin hanging on every bell and they're speaking to him. I like to think of it as, you know, the chimes stop and this sort of little card just floats to the floor, and he picks it up, and it says, of course, the Goblin King getting it done. And he looks up, <laughs> and he's there, because it's time get, for the Goblin Sitting on top of the bell, winking the gun. Hey, guess who's back? Back again. Yeah, Goblin gob- King. <laughs> Goblin King Intervention Enterprises has got another client. Uh, that's amazing. Goblin King. Life lessons, life lessons drawn, morality sketched using heavy brush, problem solved, dot, 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 
getting it done. <laughs> if you're not a long-term short liver oil listener and you're wondering what on earth we're on about, this is uh, this is all explained in The Goblins Who Stole a Sexton, which is sort of a, a mini Charles Dickens Christmas story, which we read sort of as a little bonus thing at the end of A Christmas Carol a couple of years ago. You can find it in the archive if you just scroll back in. I, I heartily recommend it. It's a, it's a lovely little uh, little story, that. But yeah, so the Goblin Bell sort of goblin struck bell uh speaks to him and the interesting thing is here and this was yeah again a, a really quite bleak and depressing part of the of the tale these chimes which have given um which have given uh what was he called toby yeah these these chimes which have given toby such comfort um when he actually gets to speak to them they're they're not the sort of benevolent comforting um sort of things that he thought they would be or that he's seen mm. them as they're also yeah. quite unfeeling and um and like almost angry with him um because they, they basically yeah. represent progress and their their whole point is it's a crime not to contribute to this great sense of human progress and the very fact that toby is feeling down on the human race is a crime in itself they basically say never never mind what everyone's saying to you especially the gentlemen and stuff you shouldn't feel um you shouldn't feel down but it's it's not said in a comforting way it's said in an mm-hmm. accusatory way almost the same way as the the gentlemen have spoken to him it's weird that isn't it and i tell you, I, I, there is something quite interesting in that isn't there in that i wonder I, clearly, this isn't what Dickens is thinking, but I do feel a bit like when we, like in the modern world, in modern society, we think of our politics as having kind of two poles or two wings. And if you're anywhere in the middle, you've sort of spoken down to by both sides, aren't you? You're failing to do this. You're not doing this. You know, you're not trying hard enough. You're not being compassionate enough. You're not X. You're not Y. You're not Z. Um, and I thought that was quite an interesting thing. I also think it's a little bit like what was going on in Charles Dickens' head or in his society such that being harangued for a completely different set of things comes as a refreshing change of pace instead of just an extra burden? Is, if, this, if this passed for, you know, comforting, this is a little bit fucking intense, isn't it? This is what comfort looks like, just being harangued in a new and different way. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. And th- so... The, the chimes now, after haranguing him for that, move into the next stage, which is he, uh, they get him to look down at the floor, like lean out over the, the edge of the sort of this windy um, bell tower. And he sees at the foot of it his own body. And he's fallen from the top of the church and died. And that was apparently, and now we're nine years on, they've sort of moved him forward nine years and he gets to see what becomes of his family. And let me warn you now, none of it's good, so get ready for, get ready for well, a I depressing mean, read. You, saw, you kind of amaze me here, but I just want to stop a note here. This is dark. Yeah. This is like a Christmas carol, but not before he dies. Not before, you know, the, the ghost of Christmas future. No, no, no. There are no ghosts of past, present, or future, or different potentials. All there is is you're fucked. <laughs> Come see how different this is. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. if he's actually dead, then all he's seeing is something that he can't change. Can't change. No. Yeah. So um, he sees his daughter Meg. She's really unhappy and tired, and a few, obviously, a few years older now. 
Um, she's speaking with Lillian, the little girl, who's now obviously now a young woman. Uh, looks like Lillian's um, started working as a prostitute because she's so um, that, that she's so quickly. destitute. Yeah, <laughs> um, and they have this argument over Lillian doing that. Lillian's like, you know, I'm sick of being just on death's door and destitute. This is a way I can actually, you know, earn some money. Yeah, and it's Meg hard is, to argue with that, right? Yeah, Meg does. And um, it, leads to them, <laughs> <laughs> it, it leads to them having this sort of angry split. I think um, uh, we see that. Then we then we move over to Bowley Hall, which is where we find Sir Joseph, the MP. And the whole point of this scene is... Um, it's, there, there are sort of three parts to it. The first bit is the alderman cute is there, and he's he's sort of doting on um, Sir Joseph's son, and he's saying, "Oh, he's gonna he's gonna grow up to be an MP like his dad, and and all this." And it's 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 told and sort of in contrast to the way he was the alderman was talking about the potential children of Meg, and that they'll never amount to anything because they're the do- they're the sons and daughters of of you and. This this sort of little boy, who's the son of Sir Joseph, is going to be is great and an MP because of who his parents are, and yeah. it's just this you know very clear point that Charles Dickens is making about the difference um, in approaches just because of circumstance and because of birth. Mm. Um, the the same thing um, in a similar way. Uh, this news arrives in the middle of the party that this banker has killed himself, um, and. The alderman is full of sympathy and can't understand why it's happened. And uh, it's probably because he wasn't rich enough, cutie pie. Eh? That's that's the problem <laughs> well, there. Well, th- th- this is the thing. He was rich, so he's thinking, "What on earth happened here?" You know, <laughs> the only reason I know for a human being to struggle in any sense is because he's not got the good common sense to be rich. This man is rich. I don't understand why he struggles. Yeah, so he's full of compassion and sympathy for the banker, and um, yeah, I would fucking imagine. Yeah, and and there's no talk of uh, anything being put down here anymore. And at, at this point, I'm, I'm going to put down bankers who aren't happy enough. <laughs> That's what you should be saying. Yeah, at this point, Charles Dickens can't really help himself, and he just goes off on one. I mean, at the end, he sort of couches it in. So thought Toby, but it's basically just Dickens <laughs> just going off on a rant. <laughs> you, I love that when an author's well well established enough that they're like, do I need to pretend this is a character, or can I just write the haranguing sermons I've always wanted to write, but nobody's ever been willing to pay me for? Yeah. Am I successful enough? Brilliant. Here we go. Let's let's get didactic now. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and the other thing that happens at this party is um, Will Fern arrives, um, and he uh, sort of cr- basically crashes the party, um, sort of the uh, the mask of the Red Death style, but not with quite the same consequences. Just to sort of burst in and burst everyone's bubble, and he basically does this very long and um, moving soliloquy on the unfairness of the whole system. And how he's been sent to jail a number of times, and that it's just it, this isn't helping any. You're not going to improve society by treating people the way Will's been treated, which is any sort of response to any problem that he's had or any issue that he's run into is to jail with him. Um, and yeah, Will, yeah, and it's, it's it's hard to say he's got no point there. 
Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sorry, carry on. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's absolutely right. So, so he's sort of says, I, I can't find work where I am, so um, I'm unemployed, so to jail with him. I, I go somewhere else to try and find work. I'm a vagabond, so to jail with him. And he just goes through all these various things that mean that as soon as you're struggling, the resp- whenever anyone's struggling in the society, the response is to punish them more. And yeah. obviously that just creates a creates a cycle where you just go on a downward spiral, which is what's happened to Will Fern here. Yeah. Um, and so it's this sort of emotional plea. I think, I think he says, you know, if you want us to be better, you need to give us sort of better homes and better food and kinder laws and things like that. Yeah. Um, Again, hard to argue with that, isn't it? Mm. Like, and I kind of love that in 1844, here is somebody sitting down and going, let's talk... Oh, not so much. I, I, you, could, you could say, let's talk about the welfare state. But what he's really doing is just talking about understanding that being poor isn't a good enough reason to be victimised by the law. Mm. And you don't even have to go to the step beyond that that I would go to, which is the law can be used to help people who are in a bad way to get into a better way. Like, mm. that, that, seems, that seems self-evident to me, but I'm very much a product of a system, you know, nearly two centuries after this where a lot of those lessons had, I had hoped, been internalised. But um, Mm. I just, yeah, I don't know, I I just quite, um, I'm a sucker for an emotional speech where somebody who has been wronged explains clearly and at length to the people who have wronged him why he was wronged Mm. um, and kind of changes the way they think. And well, and particularly that kind of speech where which overturns the social expectation that all he's going to do is go go blimey governor i'm going to steal your children i is you better send me off to prison and no mistake instead you know he's eloquent and expressive and and has a you know sort of moral authority that all of these incredibly wealthy self-involved people simply will never possess Mm. and i just i love the sight of that just love that in any work of fiction it's fantastic yeah uh, we move away from the party. Uh, I think it's a few years on from this, and Meg is working alone. Um, she's absolutely exhausted at the end of the day. Uh, Richard arrives, and mm. he's in an absolutely wretched state. It looks like he's a... I think we find this out. I'm not sure if it's now or a little bit later, but he's an alcoholic now. And yeah. um, there was some... Obviously, something's happened here, but we find out more about their relationship in the next chapter. Um and he's sort of bringing news from Lillian, who's trying to give money to Meg, um, yeah. and Meg, Meg won't accept it. And uh, it, this, this will, I'll be honest, I mean, there's been a few, a few points, um, especially in the, the second half, the third and fourth quarter of this book, where you do have to, well, I found I had to go back a few times and reread just to work out what on earth was going on, because it's not the yeah. clearest, uh, clearly written um, couple of chapters this but um yeah they sort of basically richard's sent away but then he, he he also says um that lillian's here and she's really sick and she's brought in and she's actually i think she's got tb and oh, uh, and she basically dies in meg's arms um just just as you thought it couldn't get any more sort of bleak. i was gonna say i just you know again kudos for making a christmas story out of something that is so um, apparently unremitting. Mm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Instead of making a Christmas story in which everything's fine because Christmas. Yeah. You know, doing a doing a, a Christmas story in which bad stuff happens. That's pretty. It's bleak, but I think it's effective. 
Yeah. I mean, I for me, this was the point of the story where it went a little, maybe it was a little too bleak because I got to the fourth quarter and then I just flick forward and I was like, oh, God, 20 more pages to go. <laughs> <laughs> because it was so depressing by this stage. It's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I think yeah. may, may be an example, maybe for me anyway, this may be the point where Charles Dickens sort of overplayed the bleakness a bit and it got to the stage where I just wasn't enjoying being in this world anymore. And I was like, oh, I'd quite like to end this book now. Come on, how much is left? Um, but it may, maybe that's effective in its own way as well, though, because he is trying to prove a point here. Yeah, very, very much. I, so, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, he's, de- he's he's lost his public at a certain point along the way here. And I've read other books that I have very much enjoyed after the fact, which were definitely a slog mm. to get through. Um, mm. And for me, it's all about, yeah, it's tough because I sort of felt the same way. But like I say, I liked that he was doing something interesting with it. And because mm. it's Charles Dickens, you kind of have that sense of broader security that perhaps the ending is going to be different than this whereas mm. if, if this was just to pluck an example out of the air an Ian Banks Christmas story you'd be like <laughs> nope no absolutely not if this is where you are and nobody's been horribly dismembered and eaten by their own children yet we all know it's only a matter of time fuck it I'm checking out and I'm going to go and watch It's a Wonderful Life <laughs> so but with Charles Dickens you have a bit more of a sense that you can trust where he's taking you you know yeah yeah so um, we're into the fourth quarter, and the, the visions continue. We go to um, this shop, which um, which uh, Teddy, Teddy, Toby, which which Toady, Toby, <laughs> Teddy, which Toby, Toady, Toady, oh, fantastic cameo there from a, uh, a a supporting character from Neighbours in the late nineties. Yeah, so at this shop where um, where where Toby. Uh, Owed money. It's, it's actually the, the name of the woman who runs this shop is great. She's called Mrs. Chicken Stalker, which is a cracking name. <laughs> I, uh, first time I saw that in the text, I was like, Mrs. What? <laughs> like, I, we're, we're back in the BFG at this point. Bone cruncher, man hugger, chicken stalker. Chicken stalker's the rubbish one at the back. Yeah, yeah. It turns out in the intervening years, she's married Mr. Tugby, who um, I think turned, he was, I think it was the porter at the very start of the story, um, who. Uh, was sort of hanging around the gentleman. He's sort of see, seen as this sort of in between, um, sort of complete, like I suppose, true middle class, um, literal middle class. He's sort of a bit higher than than the likes of of Toby, but obviously nowhere near the social state, status of uh, of someone like Alderman Cute. Um, Richard is is sort of in the room above this shop, and he is in a really bad way. And we find out a bit more about the backstory here of what happened between Meg and Richard, basically because of what the alderman, uh, alderman Cute told um, told Richard, the way he was he was spoken to, he backed out of this marriage, um, mm. and because of sort of the shame of that and um, the regret, he, he he ended up in alcoholism. It got turned into alcoholism. He did actually. They, Meg and Richard did get married in the end in sort of a. It wasn't really because Meg was in that either of them were in love anymore. It was just Meg did it to try and save him, and it doesn't look like it's worked. And, and at the end of this sort of short bit, um, Richard actually dies as well. I mean, jeez. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're not kidding me. It's relentless, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And I mean, at this point, you do sort of wonder how much of this is like a document of what things were like. Is he riffing on things that were actually happening, or is he just like letting his imagination run away with him? 
Because mm. I, I looked this up on Wikipedia and I found out that he actually wrote it while he was living in um, Italy for a year. So yeah. is he is he just sitting there on Christmas Eve in Italy enjoying a nice glass of red, watching the sun go down over the Mediterranean and going, oh God, I'm glad I'm not in England. It's horrible, isn't it? Yeah, think of all those horrible things. Mm. Light bulb. I'm going to write a story about these horrible things and just runs through them all. Like, yeah, I'd, yeah like... Oh, it's, it's awful, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so, so then we move into this this area where Meg, in complete despair, is trying to make ends meet on her own and care for this child of, of Lillian's as well. Um, which we've discovered that it's the child of Lillian's when um, Will Fern bumps into her. Um, he's, of course, he's about to die too. He's sort of like, sort of, he says, "I've not got long left," um, and looks into the sort of face of this child and says, oh, you can see Lillian's face. Um, then Meg is kicking... <laughs> it's just like... While I'm looking at my notes, it's just a list of, like, shit things happening. So... <laughs> so <laughs> That's amazing. That's, do you remember that, that Family Guy scene um, where, uh, where Brian has to explain what's going on in the Blair Witch Project? And he just goes, nothing's happening, nothing's happening, nothing's happening... The movie's over. A lot of people in the audience look pissed. This is like that, but it's like shit. Things are happening. Shit. Things are happening. Shit. Things are happening. It's over. A lot of people are a bit confused because it's supposed to be like a Christmas Carol. <laughs> yeah. So, so the downward spiral continues. I mean, it is effective. This in just building like um, misery upon misery, isn't it? But um, yeah, like we say, not a lot of fun to read. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so she's uh, she's kicked out of her lodgings. Um, by uh, Mr. Tugby, because the thing is, Mrs. Chicken Stalker, great name. <laughs> <Is> that... <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Go through it. Carry on. Yeah, she's um, she's basically allowed Megan, Richard, and the baby to live on. I think rent free or close to that for a while because she had such affection for uh, for Toby and for um, and for the family. Uh, yeah. le- less so from Mr. Tugby, who at the first chance basically boots them out. Um, and this is sort of this is the, the final straw. So we end up on New Year's Eve, uh, Meg going towards the river to basically do what um, what Toby read about the uh, you know way back in in the second second quarter, um, which is this woman who tried to drown herself and her daughter, um, and she's going to do that. And in sort of desperation and despair, um, Toby tries to stop her, and. He finds he actually can. He can physically restrain her. So he grabs her and stops her jumping and sort of tries to tell her not to give up hope. Um, and that's where... I mean, that, that's quite interesting, isn't it? I've never seen that yeah. before. Where, like, this is, a, this is a well-worn tale, isn't it, where there's a ghost yeah. or there's someone who's seeing these things and can't interact. It's like Scrooge in, in A Christmas yeah. Carol. But at the, at the sort of dramatic moment in this story he can do something and he does yeah 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 and 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 this is either a complete genius kind of subversion of of what you've told the audience that your character is able to do 
or is, once again, it's Christmas Eve and I need to finish this book and get it off to the publishers so that I can I can go downstairs and help with setting up the Christmas dinner. <laughs> uh, and it turned out he was fine and he could actually change things again in the end. <laughs> yeah, and then it's the classic here, straight after it, and he woke up and it was all a dream. <laughs> That's it, it, isn't it? That's, goes, he woke up, went into the next room, opened the shower and... <laughs> Yeah, so uh, yeah. so it was. Um, he he sort of suddenly wakes up and he's back in the living room with a in front of a roaring fire. I think it's on New Year's Day. Uh, Meg's working on the wedding dress. Um, she says, sort of looks over and says, "Whoa!" whoa. <laughs> she basically says, "What was in that tripe?" Because um, you've had a really crazy dream. Um, he goes over to kiss her, and Richard um, arrives first and, and says, you know, no, not even you first. I'm kissing my beautiful bride on New Year's Day. <laughs> That's amazing. Oi, pops, fuck off, all right? The deed's done. Um, but there's, he's, um, his reaction, Toby, is just sort of he's, he's, he's crying and laughing at the same time. It's just this intense feeling of relief. That um, yeah. everything is going to be okay, and then like it just it turns into complete sort of um, after school special Christmas time <laughs> feel good. We're like, oh, are we cracking out, cracking out the saxophone, Matt? Is it? <laughs> yeah, everybody starts. All the neighbors start start turning up. Mrs. Chicken Stalker turns up to sort of <laughs> wish everyone the best wishes, and everyone's laughing. It feels like you're almost at the stage where it's going to freeze frame with them all laughing, and then the saxophone yeah, yeah, begins. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, but there is a little sort of twist in the tale at the end where um, we get the author's voice coming in who asks mm. the question of us. And I think we're in, um, encouraged to draw our own conclusion here as to whether the whole chimes thing was like a vision stroke dream and he's now back in reality or whether this is just sort of his dream within a dream. And in fact, he has died and all this bad stuff has happened, but it's just him giving himself a bit of comfort at the end. And... You know, you can have two. I, I would, I would uh, suggest you have the first reading of it because then it makes it a much nicer story. But you, you know, it leaves it leaves the uh, the ending open to interpretation. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's interestingly sort of. Uh, you know, I'm not a student of literature. Otherwise, I'd probably feel more confident using terms like postmodern. Mm. You know what I mean? But it's a bit like it's a really powerful way. First of all, of making you dumping you back on the fact that for a lot of people in the society Dickens was writing to, this is what their life was like. And I think he knew that that wasn't his audience because they weren't going to buy a book that was bound and published. So his audience is the sort of privileged people who probably do stand in the street, tell people that they're robbing the poor by eating an extremely poor meal and, um, you know, and and condescend left, right and centre and write people off as useless for marriage and so on. And he's probably right. He knows he's writing to them, so he. Can't, I feel like he doesn't want to give them the the, the getaway clause. Um, the, the fact that he he declines to give them the getaway clause by taking the uh, taking the story into a dream within the dream kind of Inception type deal is just <laughs> the cherry on the cake, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, Chris yeah. Nolan, innovative bollocks. Charles Dickens, 170 years before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, the the, the reason he. There is a very clear social commentary in this, isn't there? And he's 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 known Charles Dickens as sort of a campaigning author, 
And this Absolutely, is this, yeah. this book is very much a sort of it's trying to be instructive, isn't it? It's trying to teach some lessons. I, mean, I, th- I, I picked two out, and one is the. I think there are two different things here from the lesson that the bells are actually teaching um, Trotty in the same way that the ghosts taught Scrooge a lesson. Um, and then there's a lesson that the author's trying to teach the people reading. I think there are two, I, I read them as two different things. So the first one is the bells are kind of, they're messed, they're, their lesson is is just no matter what's happening, it's an absolute crime to give up hope, isn't it? And if, if you give up hope, yeah. that's when everything goes wrong because yeah. this sort of, this future that they show um, that they show uh, Trotty is is the sort of consequence of all these characters losing hope. It, it all sort of stems back from this decision of Richard not to marry because he's been discouraged by these other people. Um, yeah. I thought it was quite interesting comparing that to something like it, it, you mentioned it before that it's a wonderful life where that. Um, stories about the sort of what happens if this guy decides to commit suicide um yeah and showing that he do, he does have an impact on the an important impact on the world and i kind of thought that was the that was the route this was going down but it really isn't is it it's just about no having a, a more positive outlook that's what it's not saying oh you know if you were still alive you would have helped this way this way this way it's just that that isn't the point at all yeah, it's not a conditional story. It's not, look how important you are, you would change this and this and this. It's far more like, look, you get to see a future now that you have already thrown away, basically. Mm. And I kind of, I can't quite work out if that's if that's just a really kind of, like, kind of cruel to be kind, but essentially, look, don't give up hope things are much better when you choose to have hope because that's powerful and i think you can choose to do that um or if it's just like really bleak like chuck palaniuk bleak you know what mm. i mean like i'm going to yeah. keep you conscious so i can show you all the ways in which things have gone terribly you know and you can take that into whatever afterlife you intend to inhabit knowing that things went to shit after you left mm. like I, I but either way jeez this is it, this is innovative stuff for saying yeah. that it does have the you know in weird ways in the way that it's written in the way that it was published and so on feels a bit like come on charlie crank it out for christmas yeah. actually <laughs> the way he chooses to take the story is like wow i just i'm gonna sit and think about that for a bit like in a yeah. way that i i don't often experience certainly with the books we do on uh on the shark yeah and then um, and the other things are that the message obviously is trying to get to the to the readership is more i think it's sim- i think it's a simpler message to be honest i think it's more about treating everybody decently and not being yeah. like the the gentleman at the start um i mean it's very clear the the final line um so may each year be happier than the last and not the meanest of our brethren or sisterhood debarred their rightful share in what our great yeah. creator formed them to enjoy basically saying everyone has the right to actually enjoy themselves and yeah. get some comfort it's, it's 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 very interesting that that is even a lesson that he feels he needs to needs to have and he needs to sort of he needs to teach people but um yeah yeah it's that the whole the whole book is about about that too yeah yeah like and i actually think that's really well like really incredibly well um put forward that like i think it's very powerful Mm. um 
and again, I think it's actually something quite special when a book can go from, you know, doing slightly weird things with its plot to kind of say, look, you know, the the, the sort of intellectual back and forth of this aside, don't be a dick, basically, mm. and actually insist upon people kind of practicing that or doing that. Mm. Um, yeah, like I I quite like that. I'm I'm a big fan of of um, stories with morals that enable you to, that are kind of don't require you to be a sort of you know moral superhero mm. to get it done where it's just like be decent to people you know yeah uh, same reason i really love bill and ted's excellent adventure matters <laughs> just be excellent to one another <laughs> yeah um in terms of sort of beyond the sort of the general message did you enjoy reading it i did it's i mean Reading any book from the sort of 1800s, particularly the first half of the 1800s, is always a bit of a workout for your brain because they just talk differently mm. and there's different assumptions that people have about the way society works and what's important and so on. Um, so it's definitely a little bit of a, right, I'm going to try hard to put myself in this headspace. Um, but um, no, I did. I liked it. I thought it was good. How about mm. you? Yeah, I, I, you know what? I read it last year. The first time oh, I did didn't, and, and I didn't enjoy it, and I came to this thinking, "Oh, oh no, this is <laughs> off the back of the Wasp Factory, which I enjoyed <laughs> less than I enjoyed like, the first time, and I didn't enjoy it very much that time. This is going to be tough." Um, yeah. But I actually got a lot more out of it this time, probably because I took my time a bit more with it, because um, you pay more attention when you're going to spend two hours talking about it on a podcast. Um, right. Yeah. But but it's also I think it's one of those stories that gets better the more you think about it as well. Um, it's a, it's one of those ones that you really you really get a lot out of just sit, sitting and pondering and just taking your time with it. Um, yeah. And it's strange because, yeah, it's not your traditional feel-good Christmas tale. Um, Certainly not. So, so you're sort of sitting down and curling up with it by the fire. Um, you, you're going to... It's going to take you to some dark places and, you know, not necessarily... Um, make everything better at the end either because it's quite ambiguous how it ends but um, but yeah I've got to say I, I really did enjoy it the second time through this uh, this year um, shall yeah. we see what the uh, the good people of the internet thought of it um, let's quite a range I, of opinion on this um, I was I surprised think. That, yeah I didn't think there'd be that many reviews but there's quite a lot um, so I think it helps because I think Audible put this out as a free download last year or the year before so a lot of people have been reviewing that um but there are there are a few few ones of specifically the book as well um if you start with Dwayne, Dwayne gave it three stars and he says uh if you're looking to add some merry to your christmas reading you might want to look elsewhere dickens delivers <laughs> dickens delivers his holiday messages in bitter doses although you'll find his ability to create interesting stories and memorable characters intact it's still depressing this one's along the lines of a christmas carol but not as good quite a few people have said that it's like a christmas carol but not as good do you think that's fair I think it's like a Christmas Carol in that it involves somebody having a revelation during the winter via some supernatural means of what the future is going to be like. Hmm. But I actually think that fundamentally it's not like a Christmas Carol at all because the whole thing about a Christmas Carol is the structure of it. He's a hmm. shit. He's seen three different ways in which him being a shit fucks stuff up. At the end, he changes from being a shit. And it's the end that's really important. Otherwise, the rest of the story doesn't isn't what the rest of the story is. Yeah. But at the end yeah. of this, what you're left with is be excellent to one another. 
and that's it. That's different, and that's far broader. So I think it's only like a Christmas Carol. It has a few similarities, yeah. but fundamentally, it's very different. I think. Yeah, uh, Paul gave it three stars. Um, <laughs> his review is amazing. He says. There aren't enough drugs in the world that will help me understand the second part of the story completely. <laughs> I thought he was going to go a different way, though. It was going to be, there are not enough drugs in the world to make me enjoy this. I tried. <laughs> no, no, he was looking to use, um, he was looking to use drugs as a, some kind of finding another plane of understanding, and he didn't find it, unfortunately. <laughs> who, who knew that Charles Dickens' Christmas fiction was not a gateway past the doors of perception? Like... <laughs> Yeah, I do think Paul's right insofar as it is quite a confusing second half to this book, especially when he's like flying around these different visions and we're jumping timelines and it's not entirely clear about what's happening to who unless you read it very carefully. So I think I have some sympathy with Paul's opinion there, but um, yeah, sure. <laughs> I love the yeah. way he put it. Yeah. A um, couple of five-star reviews. Colleen. Uh, wrote, such lovely writing, it's almost unapproachable. Charles Dickens definitely has a recognisable style. This book invoked Christmas and second chances. Love it. So, big fan. Yeah. Um, but not as big a fan as Jess, who gave it five stars. And she wow. says, and this is a glowing review, I mean, he should have stuck this one on the cover. Ch- Charles Dickens wrote The Chimes in 1844. 1844, coming up on 200 years ago. It's pretty amazing that words from nigh on 200 years ago have such power even today. By the end, my chest physically hurt, I couldn't breathe, and it quite literally moved me to tears. Wow. So, had an impact. That yeah. would be, that would, if I was the publisher, that's going on the back of the cover. By the end, my chest physically hurt, I couldn't breathe, and I quite literally was moved to tears. I mean, it not get better than that, does it? You'd probably choose I was quite literally moved to tears over the stuff that sounds like having a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, actually, fair point. <laughs> <laughs> Although, if you want to put sales through the roof, if you're slapping a warning, this will give you a heart attack on the front, I guarantee it'll sell. Oh, you get a lot of disappointed people, but it'll sell. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Go for the extreme literature crowd, the people that read books the way other people bungee jump off bridges over gorges. <laughs> Just the rush, man. I just want the rush of having my expectations undermined subtly in the manner of the construction of the narrative. Yeah! Righteous! Righteous! Um, A few people who didn't find it righteous. Um, In fact, I think Anne, uh, who gave it two stars, found Dickens a bit too self-righteous. Um, she hey. says, are you having that? She says, a little Christmas <laughs> bonus for you there. Uh, Anne gave it two stars. She said, it's Dickens at his preachiest, and as such, the story isn't as well crafted. It's more of a finger wag than a novella. You think that's fair? All right. That is a good last line. I'll give you that. Hmm. But it's Dickens. <laughs> what is that? I picked up this Tom Clancy novel and was shocked to discover that it contained reactionary politics and a lot of stuff about spies and submarines. <laughs> what the fuck are you expecting? Like, <laughs> I, I, I'm genuinely confused by that. It's a Charles Dickens novel. That's what he does. He preaches and he entertains you. If you don't want to be preached at, go and find somebody who'll write about something else. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I do think it's interesting because Dickens goes so hard on the um, moral message... 
if um, if that message doesn't speak to you, then I suppose it's going to be yeah. very hard to enjoy because he really goes doubles down on that every single time. Yeah, that's true. And I'm not saying, by the way, that I think it's a good thing that Charles Dickens does this sort of thing. I think he is heavy-handed, and I prefer people to try and have a explore moral issues rather than hitting me over the head with what the correct answer might be to them. But you can't deny that he's humane. He's decided that there's something important to say and that he's going to say it at absolutely full tilt. Um, and that's a perfectly honourable way of telling a story. Like, there's people, you know, like, I, you know, I think about um, uh, Ken Loach movies. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, uh, I, Daniel Blake. You know, like, incredibly powerful filmmaking. Of course he's trying to tell you that he believes something is right and something is wrong. That doesn't mm. mean he's bad, though. Yeah. Um, that just means you sort of, you, you know what you're going to get. Personally, like I say, I like things to be a little bit more subtle. Yeah. And a little bit more exploratory, but... I think complaining about Charles Dickens being preachy is like complaining about chips for being made out of potato is <laughs> eat something else. Yeah. Um, a couple of one-star reviews, and these two, I, I really I really like these reviews. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with them, but um, I think they, they, they put down the book quite well um, if they, you know, if this is the way you think about it. Patience. Ran out of patience with it. She said, and this is, this is quite a good criticism of it, if... Um, coming from her point of view it's like a Christmas carol got drunk sadder uglier and less coherent yes (laughs) put that on the cover yeah a Christmas carol's drunk sadder uglier and less coherent cousin oh that is cold and appropriate yeah but um the one star review to beat all one star reviews is from Gillian Gillian is this is superb she says if eating tripe does that to you, then there would be no need for drugs. Charles Dickens must have been smoking tripe when he wrote this book. <laughs> I found it quite bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. That's a, that's a fantastic shorthand for whenever we encounter a plot that's just totally out to lunch. <laughs> He's smoking, smoking tripe. tripe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that can go. That can go on the shelf with um with Nodgate from um from yeah, the Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Um, the final review I've got is a four-star review from David, and uh, and he says this is one of Dickens's less sentimental Christmas stories. It still has all the morality and heartfelt moral delivery of a Christmas Carol, but it's a darker, gloomier tale that addresses more directly the desperate fate of the poor, whom Dickens wrote about most often. And I think that's yeah. probably the fairest of the reviews for me. I think that that nails it pretty much on the head. What do you think? Absolutely, I agree with that, and I think yeah, yeah, I, I, I. I that is the one I would put on the cover, except I wouldn't because it wouldn't sell anything. But that's why I would buy it. Yeah. So that is um, that is our comprehensive look at the chimes by uh, Charles Dickens. Or hold on, whistle, whistle, whistle. The chimes: a goblin story of some bells that rang the old year out and the new year in. And the thing is that now having read it, you sort of feel like that title is not so much... It feels promising, doesn't it? It's full of ellipses. <laughs> when, you, when you haven't read it, you're like, ooh, I wonder what the new year portends. And at yeah. the end of it, you're like, oh, no, they just rang it out, rang it in again, and he was still dead. All right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I hope you enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, yeah, like I say, it's not the traditional feel-good Christmas story, but, um, but I think there's a lot to get out of it. Um, hopefully we've helped with that. 
Uh, if you want to get in touch about your own thoughts on the book, um, obviously you've missed the podcast, but we're always happy to read them and we will respond to the emails if you just email us at sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. Or we're on Twitter at sharkliveroil. Um, and this is going to be it for us for a few weeks. Um, we're going to have our Christmas break and we'll be back in the new year with a new book, which we shall put on Twitter. And uh, until then, Dave, have a have a very, very happy new year. Isn't it funny, actually, just before we go, this book is kind of more like a new year story than a Christmas story. There's not really much Christmas in it. It is, yeah. No, that's really interesting because um, I realised this because to me, like, Christmas is, is the festival around that time of year and New Year's is just, like, it's fun. But, you know these days i think a lot of people tend to feel like new year's is so hyped that it's going to end up being a bit of a letdown but mm. um uh scottish mates of mine have uh, said actually you know like just sort of 20 30 years ago people would actually take an extra day they'd work christmas day so they could take two days off or three days off at new year because mm. it's all hogmanay and that's the that's the celebration so i think it's dead interesting sort of tracking how big a deal christmas is and isn't mm. at different points in uh, in 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 things and it doesn't surprise me Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol but that was sort of the first flourishings of Christmas being everybody's big holiday mm. I think New Year had been a bigger deal for a long time before that so I find that really interesting mm. well there you go well mm. maybe keep that in mind as you uh, as, as we hurtle towards the New Year um, hope hope 2016 hope 2017's a cracking year hopefully it's better yeah. in terms of world events than some of the things that went on in 2016 without getting too political Absolutely. Well, and we can we can all agree that we'd like fewer beloved celebrities to die. Can we all get alongside that? Yeah, I think I think yeah. that's I think I think that's fair. <laughs> I'll give you that. I'm glad you agree. <laughs> so yeah, have a have a really great happy new year. Um, hope you had a great Christmas, and uh, we shall see you in 2017. Until then, see you later. See you later. Mm-hmm.